All right, enough of that. Let's look at where we are in our study today. So today we're going to look at Christian encouragement. We are studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you didn't hear Dwight's lesson last week, where he gave us the introduction to this book, it's online. Please go back and review that because it gives you the uh, information from Acts 18 as Paul um, began the work to plant this church and the way that that all occurred. Um, today's lesson is on uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Our outline, just so you know where we are in our outline, is we're in the introduction. And behind the introduction is going to come correction. Correction for the Corinthians' problems. That will be from chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 20. And then after that, we'll get Paul's answers to the Corinthians for questions which they have sent him that he's going to respond to. And then finally, we'll have a conclusion. Our book theme is verse, just one that uh, we'll reiterate and one you might memorize, is from 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, where Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I think that's, you'll see, that is a great overall theme of this book. It's about Jesus Christ and about Him crucified. Today's lesson verse is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. It's God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You'll see the context of that verse as we study that today. But that's our lesson verse. Our theme for our lesson today is God has given his grace and his gifts to the church so that believers will live holy lives and testify of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, um, in these last few days, I've been thinking a lot about church plants. You know that our church now is in the process of planting a new church, right? Of course, we planted the church in North Lake where Dusty Burris is the pastor. Dusty was in this church trained for about nine years. He took 150 people with him as we sent those folks out to plant a church. Um, immediately, it was financially independent. Within two years, it had two other elders, which meant it was totally independent of us with its own elder board. They've also been in the process of continuing to train leadership. They've had two other men that have finished the XL internship and have been added to leadership. An amazing foundation in that church. That's one kind of church plant. I don't know that our next church plant uh, will be exactly the same. It won't be. I can tell you um, it will be different because of the timing, because of the, uh, um, the pastor, uh, several things are going to make it a little different, right? As we come to this letter, I want you to think about what kind of church plant was the Corinthian church, because that's what it is. Paul was part of planning this church. And um, it's unique in the way that 
this church was formed. You know, when Paul went to preach the gospel, how many people in Corinth had heard the gospel before? How many? None. Okay, so that's not North Lake. That's not going to be our next church plant. But you know what it reminded me of? How many of you were here to hear uh, Brooks Buser talk about the ministry at Papua New Guinea? Many of you, okay. You know, I think about Brooks and his wife and his son. His son wasn't quite that age when they went. But they went to an area they were invited into, but the gospel had not been preached there, okay? So they even had to go in and create an alphabet because there was no reading language that existed. So they went to this church, and they went to this, this uh, island in Papua New Guinea, and they met these people. They learned how they spoke and developed a vocabulary and an alphabet. Why? Why was that so important? Because what they were moving toward was planning a church. And what was going to be the authority of the church? What is the authority of this church? It's the Word of God. And they needed to be able to leave in that church the Word of God. That was the whole purpose of spending the time to create an alphabet, then create a written language, and then translate the Bible into that language and teach the people to read it. I mean, does that sound like an amazing, incredible, difficult challenge? But with their team and... Um, as the Lord worked in that group, that's what occurred. They were able to accomplish that. Then they were able to preach from Genesis through the New Testament and see 50 to 60 people come to faith. A church was born. Then they trained leadership, and then they went home. They went home. They went back to San Diego. Why? Because they had left a pastor and leadership in charge of that church, and they wanted it to see it become independent. Okay? So that's what I want you thinking about as you're thinking about Paul in this Corinthian church. Because Paul did the same thing in that he preached the gospel. People came to faith, right? And a church was born. He trained leadership, and he left. He left. Well, it wasn't very long after he left that he began hearing of problems. Now, I want you to think with me of Brooks Buser for a minute. He's back in San Diego. How, what, what would he think if he got reports back from the members of the Papua New Guinea church that they were having problems, that there were quarrels in the church, there were divisions in the church, they were tolerating sexual immorality, there were lawsuits between church members. There were church members engaged in sexual immorality. There was confused doctrine being taught that the very life of the church was being threatened. 
This man that spent 15 years with his wife and with his team in that church back in San Diego, how do you think he would feel? Give me some emotions he might have. What do you think? Sad. Sad. Angry. Angry, yes. Disappointed. What? Grieved? Hurt? I mean, it's got to be broken, despondent, depressed, fearful, fearful of losing that church, angry, angry that these people would turn so far away, frustrated, anxious, and yet knowing that this, this is all done through the Lord. All of those cares were going to be cast on who? On Christ. Paul wasn't going to remain anxious, but he had these feelings. Brooks probably would have these feelings. Paul definitely had these feelings. This is his dilemma. That is exactly the reports he was getting about the Corinthian church. One of the commentators said, among all of Paul's epistles, there is none that covers such a wide variety of subjects and problems. You know, what these people were engaged in before Paul preached to them, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul said, look, none of that is what's going to mark those that go into the kingdom of God. But you know what he says? But so were some of you. In other words, this was the culture that these people were engaged in. These were the activities they were engaged in. The Corinthians, in their culture, were engaged in fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, covetousness, drunkenness, revilers, cheats. That was their activity. And Paul says, that's the activity that you were involved in, but he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. So over 18 months, Paul had trained leadership. Church was born. Job was completed. Now he has these problems to deal with, these behavioral problems. And did you know that 1 Corinthians is not Paul's first letter? We call it 1 Corinthians, but there was a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. It's referred to in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and we, we call it the lost letter. It was a lost letter um, of instructions where he, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with immoral people. So 1 Corinthians is really the second letter, okay? And in between that, Paul had a visit um, he visited to preach and establish the church. He wrote the lost letter, and then he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. It's to address these uh, disturbing news and requests for information. Well, that didn't, he didn't get a, a real good answer, a good response from the people, 
and he took a second visit. It was a hurried visit, and it was a painful visit. And then he wrote a third letter. Now, the third letter isn't 2 Corinthians. So the third letter is a very severe letter uh, in which he held the people accountable. He rebuked them for their sin, and he sought to correct them through that severe letter. That's referred to in 2 Corinthians 2.4. He had that letter brought to them by Titus. He was so anxious. Paul was so anxious to hear the news of how that letter was received. It says in 2 Corinthians 7 that he, he, he um, met Titus in Macedonia to, to get a report. How did they receive that severe letter? And Titus said they received it well and there was repentance. That was how he knew the letter had been received well that the people repented. And so uh, that gave Paul great joy. Um, and 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter. And the fourth letter um, is, a, is a letter of relief and joy at the repentance that they, they, uh, he saw, but it also confronted false teachers. So, as you think about how Paul's interacting today in 1 Corinthians, understand this is going to be a process working with this church. They've got problems, but you're going to look at how Paul as a pastor loves these people and seeks to correct them in Christ. That's what I want you thinking about as we, we go through our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, Paul said... In 2 Corinthians 11.8, he talked about all of the challenges and the trials that he'd been under. But he said, apart from all these external things, and the external things were difficult, beatings and shipwrecks. <coughs> Excuse me. But apart from such external things, Paul said, there is a daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. It's a weight that Paul carried that he a burden that he had for these churches that he has planted. Well, as we look at the uh, verses 1 through 9, what is Paul's primary concern that he has for the Corinthian church? What is he most concerned about? What is his desire for the believers? Well, what he does in this letter is he begins to reestablish their foundation. He wants them to remember the things that he taught them when he planted this church. And you know where he's going to begin? He's going to begin with helping them know who he is in Christ. In other words, he's going to help them answer this question. Why should the church listen to Paul? Why should the church obey Paul? Let's see how he answers that question. If you're not already there, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. And let's read verses 1 through 9. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called and into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how does Paul answer that question? Why should you listen to Paul? Oh, by the way, I wanted you to know, how many of you have gone to YouTube and looked up this Yimby Yimby Unto the Nations? Oh, some of you have. No, it's on YouTube. It's a 30-minute documentary, and it's extremely helpful in understanding all of that, what that ministry accomplished and what's going on at that church in Yimby Yimby. I would encourage you, go to YouTube, <coughs> look up Yimby Yimby Unto the Nations. Well, so Paul, he says he's the author and that he was called to the ministry by God. See, in verse 1, it says, Paul, again, that name, I wish we did our letters that way. You state who it's from at the front of the letter, and immediately there was a response to the people in that church. Most of them are going to love him. When it says Paul, they're going to love getting this letter. But you know what? Paul has his enemies in that church. And they hate him. But he says that he was called. When he says he's called, he's saying he wasn't self-appointed, nor was he elected, but he was called. In Galatians verse 1 of chapter 1, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ. Paul wants to emphasize that his ministry is, comes from God, that he was called by God, and he was called by God for the benefit of the Corinthian church. His ministry was to the church, but his call was from the Lord. Why should they listen to Paul? Well, because he was called. He was called by God to the ministry. Also, Paul was sent. He was sent as an apostle to bring the message of Jesus Christ. If you've been in the service this morning, you heard Tom go into detail of what it meant to be an apostle. Uh, or if you go next, you'll hear this as he explains that an apostle was a legal proxy. That's, that's what the term means. It's a messenger. It's one who is sent. He's a representative. He's a representative of the sender. And his job is to communicate the message from the sender to the people. So Paul's message carries the authority of the sender who is God. Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now as you, as you think back for a minute, how did Paul receive the call? How did Paul um, become an apostle. Do you remember? Yeah, on the road to Damascus from chapter 9 of Acts. You know, when Paul was called, 
he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was an enemy of the gospel when he was called. And then how was he called? Well, there was suddenly a light flash from heaven, it says in chapter 3 of verse 9. It flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. And as you remember, Paul was blinded at that point. He goes into the city, and Ananias delivers this message to Paul. Because the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So the call came on the road to Damascus for Paul. His life changed radically. He became an apostle, and he became an apostle with a message of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, later on in this letter, he's going to say to the Corinthians, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? What's the answer to those questions? Yes. So all answered yes. Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul identified himself as an apostle to the Gentiles in Romans eleven thirteen. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He also identified himself as equal in his apostolic authority as Peter. In Galatians 2, 7, he says, I have been entrusted the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter has been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. So why obey Paul? Why listen to Paul? <coughs> because he's bringing the message from God the Father. Finally, Paul was given his ministry by the authority of God the Father. So there's authority in his position as an apostle. It's an authority that comes by the will of God, it says in verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. That's where he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His authority is from God our Father. And again, that's when he talked about in Galatians 1.1, it's not through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's not self-appointed by his own will or designated by other men, but he sent to them by the will of God, as his messenger, to proclaim his message. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul introduced in verse 1 as well, Sothenes as his brother, 
It's interesting how Sothenes became a believer because he was the one that in Acts 18 that took Paul to the local civil authority in order to have him punished. Instead, Sothenes is the one who was beaten and received punishment as the civil authority rejected his claim. (coughs) But it, it appears that Sothenes was one that repented and believed the gospel because he's now a co-worker with Paul. So, Paul's desire in the opening of his letters not to exalt himself, but to exalt God. He emphasizes that his calling is not his own choosing, but his calling is from God. He emphasizes that his apostleship is not, is, brings him not to bring his own message but to bring God's message of Jesus Christ. And then again, that his authority is not from any human authority, but authority given to him by God the Father. That's what he gives as the reasons that the Corinthians need to listen to him. So, when Brooks Buser left that church, what did he leave? He left a translated word of God into the language of the people of Papua New Guinea. What does he um, leave for us as we look at why we should obey Paul? It's the fact that he says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is inspired by God. And what's it profitable for? for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that is how Paul comes to these people. He loves them, but he wants them to understand that as he comes to them, he comes to them not with just his own message, but a message that is from God. And then he wants them to understand who they are. Who are they in their identity in Christ as the recipients He first tells them that as being the church at Corinth, this church belongs to God. Verse 2, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Church is uh, defined as an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ. Ecclesia. It differentiated themselves from the Jews who met at the synagogue. In Matthew 6, 16, 18, Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build what? My church. He wants the Corinthians to know this is God's church, and it's being built by Christ. The church does not belong to Paul. It doesn't belong to the Corinthians. The church belongs to God. Secondly, he wants the believers to remember that they've been set apart to live holy lives. In verse 2, it says the believers, it says to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctified. (coughs) When you see that as being something that occurred in the past, we know that's then the positional sanctification, right? Right? Because there's positional sanctification that happens at a point in time, but there's progressive sanctification 
that continues throughout the life of a believer, right? This he's talking about is positional sanctification. The doctrine that says they're set apart in salvation for Christian living. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. In Acts 20.32, he says, Now I commend you to God as to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Hebrews 10.10 says, how we are sanctified. It says, by this we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then Hebrews 13, 12 says, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered on the cross. So there's um, the fact that these believers need to understand This is what has occurred for those that repented and believed. They have been sanctified. They have been set apart. And they've been set apart for the purpose of holy holy living. Now that process wasn't completed as we know. Um, Even though the New Testament speaks of a definite beginning to sanctification, it also sees a process that continues through our Christian life. We see that in Romans 6.11. It says, even so consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we with all with unveiled faces, beholding as a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed. So there's, there's that that happened where they are sanctified, but they're being transformed in the same image, glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So there's that continuing transformation taking place in the life of a believer. And then at the, uh, there's the, an ending point in sanctification when it's completed. It's completed sanctification. It's entirely completed when the Lord returns and we receive new resurrection bodies. Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even subject to all things to himself. That's the final completed uh, process of sanctification. But that's what believers had been, they've been sanctified. They've been set apart. They need to know that when he comes, when he comes about to correct their their behavior and their problems. Verse 2 also says they are saints by calling, called to be saints. Kistemaker says in his commentary, holiness is more than a state. For believers, sanctification is both a definitive act of God and a lifelong process as they seek to fulfill their commitment to be holy, to practice holy. They're called to, in that uh, regard to walk in a manner worthy. So Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Colossians 1.10 says, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in knowledge of God. So that's a key part of our sanctification is... We're set apart to live holy lives, but 
We're to be growing. We're to be increasing. And we're to be increasing in what? In knowledge. That's a part of the process that we have going on in our lives as, as, as we're believers. We should be growing. We should be increasing in knowledge as well as in our behavior. Second Peter says there's a part that we play in that. Second Peter 1.5 says, Now for this reason also apply all diligence. That means effort. All diligence? That means that we're to put forth great effort in our own sanctification. It says, in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. What do those attributes sound like? Fruits of the Spirit. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if they're yours and they're increasing, they render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the, the linking of knowledge in, in, uh, in spiritual growth and the diligence that's required? Again, Peter came back in a second time to return to that theme. He says, therefore, brethren, be, the all, be all the more diligent. In other words, be one who exerts great effort. The church belongs to God. He sanctified believers and set them apart to live holy. And then he links the believers. The believers are part of God's universal church. Do you see that? In verse 2 he says, With all who are in every place, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. By saying, with all who are in every place, he's helping the Corinthians understand they're part of the church universal that Christ is building. They're not just isolated by themselves. They're with the body of all believers unified by faith in Jesus Christ. And they're equal with every other church, whether Jew or Gentile, whether the church is a model of obedience or struggling with sinful problems. They're part of this universal church. In Acts 9.31, Paul addresses the universal church. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace and being built up. Ephesians 1.22 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him head over all things to whom? The church. This is the universal church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 1.18 says, he also is the head of the body, the church. So, this group of Corinthian believers is not isolated. He wants them to see who they are. They belong to God. They've been sanctified. They're set apart to live holy lives. And they're part of this universal church that God is building through Christ. And then in verse 3, Paul gives the um, common greeting, the consistent greeting that he gives to the, all the churches in his letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that in the letter to 
the Ephesians, grace to you and peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. To the Galatians, uh, verse 1, verse 33, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's grace, which is God's favor, and peace, which is that freedom from worry. And grace is always first, peace always second, because the fact that grace is the source of peace. And both are gifts from God, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is reestablishing their foundation. He reminds them of who they are in Christ. And what is he reminded of? They are Christians. You know, that's what he's helping them understand. They are Christians. They're God's church. They belong to God. They've been sanctified by Christ. They're no longer slaves to sin, but redeemed. They're set apart to live holy lives. They're not isolated, but unified with all believers everywhere. So now Paul's established why you listen to him, and he established who they are in Christ. But now he's going to say, well, if he's bringing the message of God, well, then why should we listen to God? He's going to address that. Why should they obey God? Well, he's going to go through the benefits, the benefits of being Christians. He's setting a very positive tone, isn't he? I mean, before he comes with rebuke and correction and instruction, he sets a very encouraging tone, a very positive tone, and yet one that is foundational to what's going to come be after in this letter. He wants them to understand who he is and who they are, and then he wants them to understand the benefits of their salvation. <coughs> Look at verse 4. He begins by saying, I thank my God always concerning you. Now, if you think about the four letters that he's writing, the three visits that he's making, all the problems that he's dealing with, it seems kind of amazing that he would thank God for them, right? But he does. He thanks God for them because he sees them as those that are in Christ. Yeah, there's many problems that need to be corrected. Um, but he sees these as those who came to faith through our Lord Jesus Christ, through the gospel. And therefore, they're his brothers and sisters. He's their, their uh, calls himself his father in Christ in that he helped mentor them. He helped bring them to Christ, and he loves them. Um, in Ephesians 1.15, he says uh, he thanks the Lord in this way, but he never ceases giving thanks for you while making mention of them because of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Corinthians have the same faith. Well, then he begins with the benefits in verse 4. He says, the first benefits are ones you've already received. And it begins with, God gave you his undeserved and unmerited grace for their salvation. Look at verse 4. He says, for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Acts 15.11 says, but we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way they are also. That was Peter speaking at the Jerusalem Council, talking about how Gentiles come to faith. They come to faith just as they had, just as the Jews had, by grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in Ephesians 2, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So Paul wants to call to mind this most expensive gift, this greatest gift, this unbelievably hugely important gift to them that came undeserved and unmerited. It's the grace of God by which they've been saved from their sinful condition. As condemned sinners, they were saved by the grace of God. They were saved through faith and not of themselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of any works that they did, so that no one may boast. They received grace, God's favor, his mercy, instead of receiving the penalty they deserve, Christ took their place and received the punishment that they deserved at the cross. Now they are declared righteous, and they receive the righteousness which Christ earned by living a perfect life. I mean, that's an amazing gift. That's amazing grace. And that's what they had received. That was the benefit. Instead of eternal punishment, there was eternal life. That's the first gift he mentions, and that's the greatest gift. But God had also enriched their lives by giving them an ability to speak, and to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. 1 Corinthians 3, later in the book, he says, so let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. That's a very um, significant uh, universe of things he's talking about here, right? He's talking about all things that are necessary for them. We're given to them by God in Christ. It says in verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Now he's going to link all things to knowledge and to speaking. In 2 Corinthians 8 he says, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired, you see that you abound in this gracious work also. So, this, um, when he speaks of in all speech, that same word is utterance. It's the same word used um, in Ephesians 6.19 where Paul says, and pray on my behalf. Now listen to this. Paul is asking prayers on his behalf for what? that the utterance, or that the speaking, may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was asking for those to pray to him for that ability to speak. Because that's what's been given to all believers, is that utterance, that ability to speak, that ability to give an account for the hope that is in you. First Peter says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with what? With gentleness and with reverence. 
So they've been enriched in their lives. God has given them the ability uh, to speak and to speak of him and to speak of the gospel. But he's also enriched them to, with the knowledge that they need, the knowledge that they need to live holy lives. You know, in 2 Peter 1, as we looked at that before in verse 2, it says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything. There's that same word, all things, right? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through what? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. What a great benefit to receive that kind of knowledge that helps you be partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. By the way, this isn't a secret knowledge that the Gnostics talked about later. This is not only given to the elite few. No, what Paul's saying is, this is what you have that is given to all the believers. You possess this knowledge. And it's the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. It's the knowledge of, Lord, of the Lord. And it's of incredible value. He'll later on say in Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Later, Paul would say in Philippians 3, that I may know him, that knowledge, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that I may gain Christ. That's a gift that's the benefit that these believers possess. The knowledge is of the reality of Christ's person and his death on the cross. In verse 4 he says, God gave them all spiritual gifts as well. The gifts necessary for their growth and to edify the church. Verse 7 says then, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The Corinthian believers were not lacking in any gift. They had received God's grace. They would also received every spiritual gift. Again, that's in 2 in in Peter 1 where it says, he granted to us everything. In that everything is included every spiritual gift. Now, when we get to chapter 12, we're going to talk a lot about spiritual gifts. Paul's going to give great details about the spiritual gifts that edify the church. But his point here is that they've received every spiritual gift that they need to live holy, day, holy lives and be witnesses of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not all they've received. That's what they've received already. But they're going to receive a benefit in the future. And their future benefit is God promised to confirm and establish the believer until he returns. Look at verse 7. It says, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul exhorts the believers to eagerly anticipate and look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 Peter 1.7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When does that occur? When he returns. And he says in 1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. So there's going to be that future that he, that where you'll spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And the believers are to, to eagerly anticipate and look forward to Christ's second coming. In verse 8 it says, who will confirm you to the end. So as they eagerly await and anticipate that second coming, it says that God promises to present the believer holy and blameless. He will confirm them, in verse 8 then, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, one of the commentaries I read said, it's preaching the gospel confirms the believer in their faith. So the promises of God's abiding power establishes them until the consummation. The phrase, will establish you, expresses not a mere wish, but a promise which God is going to confirm. So he will confirm and establish the believer, and then he will, he will um, present him holy and blameless. Philippians 2.16 talks about this day of Christ. It says, hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So, at that last final judgment, Jesus is going to present the church, and he's going to present the church holy and blameless. In verse 5, in verse 25 of chapter 5 in Ephesians, he says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present himself, the church, with all her glory, what? Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He's going in Colossians 1.21, he says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is the future blessing. In that day, the believers are declared blameless through the verdict of the judge. So he's told them what their benefits are that they've already experienced, they've already received, the grace that is from God, the spiritual gifts, the speech and the knowledge he tells them what they're going to receive in the future is he's going to confirm and establish the believer until his return, and then he's going to present them holy and blameless at the final judgment. How do we know that's true? Verse 8 says, or verse 9, excuse me, says, because God is faithful. God is faithful. He is trustworthy to keep his promises. That's echoed throughout Scripture, Right? Deuteronomy 7.9, Know therefore the Lord your God. He is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenants 
and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but is common to man, and God is what? God is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.33, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So God the Father who works out his plan of salvation through Christ Jesus, his son. The father originates the plan. The son executes the plan. First Thessalonians 5.23 says this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. And he will bring it to pass. Clearly, God is going to accomplish what he promises to his people. What a great um, future that these Corinthians have. What a great presence they have. What a great future they have. Paul's called them to understand the benefits of their salvation. He's reestablished their foundation because he's going to bring behind this Correction and instruction. But the believers had to have been encouraged at this point to understand who they are in Christ. Well, let's, let's look at application for us. Paul has some beautiful prayers. And we need to have that same heart for the church for our church plants, for our own church, that we would pray like Paul prays for the church. He says in Ephesians 3.14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant, according to the riches of his glories, to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depths, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the fullness of God. That's Ephesians 3, 14 and 19. I would encourage you to pray that prayer for all of us that are in the church and for those that are in the church universal, that we may be strengthened with power, that we, Christ may dwell in our hearts, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, that we may be able to comprehend the love of Christ and that we may be filled up to all fullness in God. What a great prayer. And then Philippians 1.9, he says, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, 
which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of our God. Do you see in that prayer how what Paul's praying for is that the church might be filled with the knowledge of Christ and as a result, they may exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in the body of Christ? We need to pray that way for our church. We may pray that our church, that love abounds in this church, that it's love that's based on real knowledge and all discernment, that we know the things that are excellent and that we're sincere and that we may be blameless in the way that we live our holy lives and that the fruit of righteousness will come through Jesus Christ and as a result, praise and glory will go to God. Well, we're also to live as if you belong to God by faith in the Son of God, set apart to be holy in all that you do. Live as you belong to God. That is our identity as well. It's not just the Corinthian identity. We belong to God. We've been set apart. We've been sanctified. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 6.11 says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Look, we know we have a battle against sin. And Paul is calling us to battle our sin and to live holy lives. So we recognize that you have received what you need to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians 1.5 says that in everything you are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. That's all of us. We have received that enrichment from God. It's promised. And that 2 Corinthians 5.20 isn't just for Paul. It's for all of us. When he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You know, we need to know the gospel in order that we can proclaim the gospel. It's the facts by which you were saved, but it's, the, um, it's by what we need to profess to men that they can come to salvation as well. If you want to brush up on the gospel, there's an evangelism class that starts next week in the third service. But I just would encourage you that you've received what you need you just have to open your mouth. But when you open your mouth, you want to make sure that the gospel that you are presenting conforms to the Word of God. And to do that, you need the knowledge that you've received, but that you need to have in your heart that comes out of your mouth. Lastly, rejoice Rejoice in the anticipation of the return of Christ who will present you holy and blameless. I mean, those benefits that we talked about that are promised to the Corinthian church are promised to us. God's going to hold us. He's going to confirm us. He's going to establish us. He's going to keep us in our faith. That is a great promise. 
And then he's going to present us holy and blameless on that final day of judgment. And we're to rejoice, as it says in 1 Peter, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing at the revelation of his glory, that you may re- <coughs> excuse me, that you may rejoice with exultation. Come soon, Lord Jesus, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter that is Scripture, written by your apostle, your messenger, Paul. Lord, we know the reason we obey it. We obey it because we understand who we are in Christ. Lord, we understand it because we understand the grace that we've received from you. Lord, we, uh, we understand that prior to the salvation that came to us through the gospel, that we lived uh, lives of debauchery and corruption, that we were dead in our sin. But Lord, out of nothing that we deserved, out of nothing that we earned, you saved us. So our motivation for obedience is not to earn that salvation. That could never happen. That's impossible. Our motivation is out of our love and our desire our love for you, and out of our desire to please you. I pray that each one of us would go forth with that attitude, Lord, to proclaim your name to those that are lost, Lord, to live in a way that would be attractive to those who are lost because of the joy we possess, Lord, because of the stability and the direction that we have in our lives. And Father, I do pray if there's one here this morning Lord, if there's one here that has rejected your word to this point, has resisted your word, has resisted the gospel, Lord, I pray that today it would be clear to that person their need to repent and believe. Lord, in order that they might receive the grace that you've offered in salvation. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.